So what they did is, <coughs> God damn! <coughs> Bless you. I just no. I just I just call, I just choked on I don't know nucleotides and <coughs> DNA. Welcome back to University, everybody, the podcast where we explore the hard-hitting questions about the Earth, existence, and the unknown. I'm Judson Martin, your host, and along with me is AJ Perrin. Go ahead, man. Tell us what your job is. No, you were supposed to say... No, you're supposed to say what your job is. No, What's your job? You you're a co-host. co-host. No, but you say... You let me say my own name. That's crazy. No, like. I just said your name because okay. I'm the host and you're the co-host. And today. I'm the co-host. Today. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So... Today, we're going to be exploring some of the Nobel Prizes. Yes, for this year. For this, this year's, year's Nobel Prize and yeah. some history surrounding the, the prizes and all that good stuff. Yeah. So it's going to be pretty exciting. And there, yeah, so we're going to be going over like five different prizes and all of them are pretty, like a lot to unpack. So there's something for everybody in this episode. We've got, we're going to talk about physics, medicine, chemistry, like all, all the jazz um, right here. And we also got some other interesting topics like today's news is going to be pretty cool. And also um, I have a, like a fun other topic that I forgot to talk about last week that we get to talk about now. Um, so we've, again, we've got a lot to unpack. So I think we should just jump right into it. Well, let's start with news then, Judd. Um, this isn't actually, the more I look into it, the less it is breaking news and more the research that people have been talking about for the p- past couple of years recently got published, making headlines again. Sure. Um, and it got published in Science, which... My bad, I just turned off my mic. Um, it got published in Science, which is a big deal. Like, literally, just... that Science is a journal. And just to say, like, you got published in Science. The journal's called Science. Yeah. Think about a better science journal than Science. Well, there's one other one that's called... Nature. Nature, and that yeah. one's also pretty high up there. Yeah. I don't know which one's better. There's probably one called physics, too, but, like, come on. It's, nah. It's got a great... Science has a great reputation, um, and it has brought us some interesting stuff to talk about today, which is that we're going to talk a little bit about the Earth, the makeup of the Earth. So, Judd, like, we know at the, the inside of the Earth, we've got the core, this iron and nickel metal core, and then there's a liquid outer core, and then there's the mantle, and then there's the crust. And it's a little bit more involved with that, but that's all you really need to know is that there's the core, the mantle, and then the crust. Um, and for ever, basically, we thought that this was basically just all rock or magma and stuff like that. However, over the last half decade, decade or so, scientists have been exploring a new idea, which is that part of this Earth's crust is actually made up of water. Um, and there's a very specific reason we think this is possible. Sometime in the past, these volcanic forces forced this brown diamond up to the surface of the Earth. We know diamonds are formed under really immense pressures and stuff like that, so we get these really nice-looking crystals. Yeah. And this diamond comes to the surface. Now, the diamond in itself, cool, but there was something inside the diamond that was even cooler, which is this mineral called ringwoodite. The interesting property of ringwoodite is that it can actually hold uh, per volume about 1% to 2% water. And that's, that's a significant amount of water. Right. So what that means is that somewhere down in the earth, part of the makeup of this rock is these minerals that are able to hold water. 
Now, along come these geologists who are studying the energy of earthquakes as they move through the surface of the earth in the United States. And they found that in areas that were highly concentrated in ringwoodite, the energy of the earthquakes would slow down or kind of get sloshy, and they predict that this is because of a high concentration of water that's being held by this ringwoodite. Yeah. And we're talking about a lot of water, like more water being held by this mineral under our feet than there are in the entire oceans and all the oceans of the earth. More water here in these minerals than all the oceans combined. That's a lot of water. It's funny because we do a lot of talk about stuff outside of the planet on this show, but to think that there is always still more to learn here. Most of the headlines are saying something about there being oceans inside the earth and stuff like that, which is maybe misleading because it's not like it's sloshing around and it's mobile and there's these like giant caverns filled with water. It's more like the water is being stored within rocks itself, but it's a significant amount of water. But parts of it may be cavernous, maybe, you know? Who knows, man? There's water under our feet. There's water down there somewhere. I think you were just, I think you said earlier this was within the mantle. And so kind of to put that in perspective, humans have never dug into the mantle. Ever, I don't think we're even close. So pretty far down there, um, that's where all this water is located. And it's one... one per, one to two percent of this volume of this ringwoodite is like quite a bit, like you said, more than all the oceans, a lot of water. Yeah, adds up when you think about the size of the earth, but yeah. Um, okay, so let's now move on to brain gains after news. Judd, do you have anything? Yeah, cool. I do, all this right. time. Let's hear it. So, And don't let me forget to say mine after. Okay. Because this is, this, this is a carryover from last episode, and I'm, okay. I'm at my boiling point to release this information. I don't think you're going to forget now. Okay. Um, That's what I thought last week. So something interesting that I found was t- over 10% of all of the salt that is mined in the earth is used for U.S. roads. So just the U.S., Say it again. 10% of the salt that's mined is used on roads. Like used to de-ice roads. To de-ice them in the United States. Just to de-ice them. And that's 10% of the ice, the salt that we mine each year. Wow. And 50% of the ice or the salt that's mined goes into your food. I mean, I no. <laughs> I do like to have some, you know, salty food, some... Yeah. But you got to match it, it with some savory and sweetness. But, yeah. yeah. No big deal. <laughs> what a chef. Um, no, that's actually crazy. You said 10% of... Do you know the, the volume of that salt, what no. that is? Okay. No. Just 10%. And explain again why, you know, for those of us who definitely remember um, or definitely don't remember. I'm not one of those people. But, like, I explain again right. why salt de-ices roads. Is it because it raises the melt... Lowers the melting point? Right? Yeah. Of the ice. Okay. And so then, okay. Yeah, so then it melts. So then it melts even at lower temperatures. Nice, man. There's also some kinds of, I don't know if these are, well, there's some kinds of salts that if you put on the water, it actually is a chemical reaction that produces heat, yeah, which okay. then melts the water. Oh, so the reaction itself is. But that's a different is, kind of What is it called salt. when a, a reaction releases heat? Exothermic. Exothermic. There you go. And I remembered that too, which is why I let you answer it. And I remembered that because it was in our Neil deGrasse Tyson episode. Was it? Yeah. Oh, okay. He was asking, yeah. He was asking about hydrogen and oxygen being combined and he mentioned that it released energy. So then I said it was endo or exothermic, but he He was, he was, yeah, he wanted water. Okay. I remember that. Yeah. Go listen to Judd 
not being able to answer answer simple chemistry questions uh, in the Neil deGrasse Tyson episode. Yeah, enjoy that. Let's see. So now we can move on to my brain gains, which is a is is a vintage one because it's two weeks old. Or what's a different word for it? Yeah, it's aged like fine it, wine. So now it's just new right now. Okay, yeah, it's new information for you guys. Yeah. So there's this guy named uh, Robert John. Doctor Robert John was a person at Princeton studying what's called parapsychology. Um, and I'm going to try to remember this story as best I can off the top of my head because I literally didn't write it down because I didn't even want you to look at it. I didn't want you to know what I'm about to say. All right. I'm, this is brand new. So he was studying parapsychology. And if you've never heard what that is, let me tell you the name of his lab then instead. Because Princeton was like, you do great work. Let's give you your own lab and you can do whatever you want. So he has this lab called the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab. Now the word anomalies makes you sound like, or makes it sound like it's a lab from Stranger Things. And it's literally not far off. It ma- this guy reminds me of the guy who was in Stranger Things, Papa or so whatever. So 11's down there? No, like 11's Papa or whatever. No, yeah, but 11 is oh, like in, in the, the lab. lab. Well, th- well, you can answer that question once I tell you what he was studying. So he wanted to know if people can control stuff with their minds. So he would devise experiments essentially where people would come in and there's a task that has a certain predestined outcome and he was trying to get people to use their mind to change that outcome let me give you an example so do you know what plinko is yeah it's like a board with the pegs and the ball falls down yeah so the cool thing about plinko is that if the things are distributed right it will create a normal curve or or just a yeah a curve that is even on both sides at the bottom so the way the balls or plinko things whatever will stack up at the bottom is only semi-random it's like there's an expected outcome right so he was like sit down and think about trying to move all the balls to the right or all the balls to the left or something like that. So he was trying to see if people could deviate the expected outcome. Now, before I tell you about his results, I'll tell you maybe a couple more examples of studies he was running. Another one was there was a pendulum that would swing back and forth. This robotic arm would grab it and then let go. And then there was a, you knew how many times it would take to stop and you were supposed to stop it before it reached that number. Or, for example, if there's a random number generator between 0 and 1, you're trying to force it to be greater than 0.5. Or, for example, this one is probably the most interesting one. I'd have a friend like you come in um, to the lab with me, and Dr. John would give you a piece of paper with a bunch of information, like you have to be here at this time doing this thing on campus, like whatever, a bunch of specific details. And then at that specific time, I'm supposed to sit down and focus my mind and try to envision like where you are and what you're doing. And I get points depending on how accurate I am. So like with that, the other person doesn't know. No, you haven't told me anything, hopefully. Yeah. Now, I know all this because I actually know one of the people who was got to participate in these experiments, which were happening in kind of the 90s, I think. Yeah. Um, but since then, so he ended up publishing research on the research on this, and the research showed a significant difference between the people who, the control group, the people who weren't trying to do anything to it, and the non-control group who were literally trying to control things with their mind. And now before you start thinking, like, how can I train myself to get the force, essentially, because that's yeah. what it sounds like. I want to do that. Um, he's been a little criticized... Uh, in the academic field based on his why. statistics. So basically, in statistics, you can do this thing called a cumulative um, error. So, Judd, if your results show a small little bit of deviation from normal, if I just ran one trial, a little bit of error is to be expected yeah. within the semi-randomness of the case. Right. 
However, if I run you a thousand, two thousand, seventy thousand times, that little error, if what I do is continue to add to a cumulative error, that error starts to it starts to get really large. Right. If you like introduce a small amount of error into the first into every trial, then yeah. it's going to be biased towards that error. Right. Exactly. And so once you get to um, trial numbers of hundreds of thousands, which is exactly what he did. He was doing this over a really long period of time. He was able to collect hundreds of thousands of trials. Yeah. Um, the error started to show that there was a significant difference when there really wasn't. It was all within like kind of the semi-randomness. And this is based on kind of two things, two ideas. Um, this is something called p-hacking, which in research, all you need to know is like basically doing stuff to your numbers to make them... At large values of trials, you can kind of tweak your statistics a little bit to force a significant difference, depending on like what angle you're looking at it from. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that his baseline, the control, aka like when the Plinko pieces fall, the the baseline, what you expect, the expectation was almost too perfect. If you looked at his numbers, it was all like there was almost no deviation from the normal, even though deviation is expected to some degree, right? Yeah. So... Sometimes researchers really want to get a perfect baseline so that when they're comparing their altered group, you can see that significant difference much easier, right? Yeah. So that may may have been the case here, but I'm not the one to say. But I think it is a little safe to say that you won't be controlling floating cups in your living room or anything anytime soon. So they, did, I guess Princeton's just giving anybody they want a lab, anybody who wants one. Well, he was he was like a very well-established faculty member before he started doing this in physics and stuff like that. Sure. Um, so he had been there a while, and I think he actually wanted to retire or something like that, and they were like, no, if you stay here, we'll give you your own lab. You can have your whatever you want to do. Like, you can just have a facility here. Just keep doing stuff for us. Interesting. So, yeah, and I mean, that's what people tell me. They're like, come work like come oh, okay. work for us, and you do this, and we'll give you your own like, lab, do anything. But right, right. I think, I mean, I have a little more discipline, I guess, than Robert John, because I... I have to turn down those offers left and right. But. Yeah, what are you going to explore if they give you all the money to do anything, though? <laughs> okay, if I did have a lab, I don't know what I would study. I'd retire. If they if I was going to retire, I'd retire, period. You Fair know. enough. All right, uh, let's move on to now Nobel Prizes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Judd, what's a Nobel Prize? So <laughs> the Nobel Prizes were established by this guy called Alfred Nobel, or whether they were in his memory. Yeah. Um, this is a type of guy who, if he had the chance to retire, he probably wouldn't, you know, because yeah. he cares about science. He's a stuff. Robert John kind of character. He just cares about science. I think yeah. he's a little better than Robert John. Um, I mean, yeah, he's got he's got prizes named after. I can't hate a, on Robert John. You know, I guess he was just trying to. He was trying to. You could do an experiment to prove it right or wrong. He Somebody just, needs to make you know, sure that we either have the force or we don't. So I think I could have told you either way right now, but yeah, you got to run the experiment and make sure. Exactly. So yeah. So um, the you said Alfred Nobel, right? Yeah. Yeah. He died at the end of the 19th century, essentially. And a couple years, I think, before he died, he was like, I have all this money. I'm going to put in my will that all uh, or this this huge share of my fortune is going to go into establishing the Nobel Prizes. And so in in short, the he's a he's a Swedish guy. So it was in Kroner, Swedish Kroner. And I don't know the like the what do you call that when you the currency? Yeah. Um, you flip the currency. Come on. We got this. Exchange rate. Yeah, that's what it's called I said. the exchange rate. That's what I said too. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So I don't know the exact exchange rate, but basically, at the time that he had enough money that they were going to put it into a bunch of I don't know mutual funds or like investments, and the money that was generated from these investments every year would be used to give out money to prizes who are do to people who are doing 
really powerful stuff in the following categories. We've got physics, we've got chemistry, medicine, literature, peace, and the later edition was economic science. I think this was in like the mid 20th century or something like that, but they were like, we need economic science. So they added that as well. Um, but so according to the Nobel Foundation, a prize, this is just an interesting thought, the prize can't be distributed among more than three contributors, which might be unfair to the fourth guy who is just like, he was a good assistant, but like he didn't do as much, but like he still did something significant. Yeah, here. I know that that's kind of a controversial thing right now is a lot of projects who have more than, or who can't be kind of boiled down to the top three contributors yeah. don't um, end up getting a Nobel Prize just because, you know, they... It's in the rules that it's not allowed to go to more than three people. So they want to kind of change that, but I don't know if they ever will. Or Well, but think about an award means. ceremony, too. Like when somebody goes up to um, accept an award, what do they start doing immediately? Just thank you to everybody. Thank you to everybody. Exactly. So it's like the, regardless of the project level, there's always other people that are helping out and contributing. And I'm not saying like they need to give Nobel Prizes out to these people's moms and stuff like that. But, I mean, they should. You know, yeah. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it is It is weird. Like, is three the re- really right number to capture all the work that was done for a project? I don't know. But that was, that's been the rule. So it's hard to, it's like the constitution. It's hard to change. Let's see. Also a prize can, it can't be divided between more than three people, but it can be divided between two projects that are considered to have equal contribution in the area, which yep. I don't know how many times that's been actually done, but that is like something. So imagine there's two projects with three people that apparently contributed equally to the field. Now six people can get... Uh, is that... How it works, or does I it have to be three? I think that's how that works. I think, it, I think what it means is that, like, two different projects that aren't working on the same material at all can get the same Nobel Prize. It gets split between... But that there has... They have to be... It has to be considered, like, equal contribution to the field. Maybe. Rather than on the same project. I don't know. Um, but that, that's what I gleaned from that. And then, let's see, between 1901 and 2023, so this year, there have been 621 prizes awarded among the categories, and the largest being physics, which has received 117, uh, meaning a couple things. Um, Either they didn't give, you know, physics has gotten a prize the most years, because they don't always give a prize um, in a certain category every year, but also that probably means that the most contributors or the average number of contributors is biggest in the physics category. Um, there have been years where prizes weren't awarded, such as in World War One and World War Two, right? Which kind of makes sense because if there's a global conflict going on, people probably yeah. aren't that uh, interested in. Yeah, there's advancements like, in science that always come out of a war, but they're yeah. usually not revealed until a little bit later. Yeah, and also it's like it's a, kind of an international thing, the Nobel prizes, and I don't think people's top priorities were to, like get together in some conference hall and talk about stuff besides how to stop the war yeah yeah they were not awarded in, during world war one and world war two and then they can also just like i said decide that nobody did significant enough work to get the prize which i'm like that's kind of crazy because i feel like there's always significant work being done but what's the threshold where something becomes like nobel prize worthy and imagine feeling like i don't know getting all the press th- that year for your chemistry work and then the nobel prizes were like uh, you were close. You were close. Yeah. You know, you want these prizes to be, like, equal in magnitude. So, like, you want that project to be something yeah. that changed the world, you know, on a good scale. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know. But I still think, yeah, I agree that, like, I feel like they should give one out every year because there's still some work that, like, was the biggest work of the year, you know? Yeah. 
I think I might have told you this fact already, Judd, but who, what was the oldest person to ever get a Nobel Prize? 97. 97. And I just, that fact is, that's crazy to me because it's like, I mean, you're not getting recognized for work you did that year. So he, I mean, sometimes you are, but that doesn't mean necessarily that he was 97 working on his project, but that means that he was recognized when he was 97 for something he did during his lifetime, which is really cool. Um, he, his name was John B. Good Enough, like literally spelled good enough, which I think is super funny when we're talking about getting awards. He's like, it it was good enough to get, uh, um, a Nobel prize. He was, his development was in lithium ion batteries. Uh, so he, was one of the pioneers for that technology, which is in basically everything, every electronic that we use uh, these days, or, or really big electronics that we use these days. There have also been two people. This is insane, but I know this, I mean, you're a humble guy, so I feel like you would fit into this category, but two other people no, have been, no. no, you're reading this I and you're saying no? It. Okay. So two people have been awarded the prize, but declined it um, and said that they don't want it. I can't remember exactly the specific circumstances. It might be that they thought that somebody else deserved it or that they, um, I don't know. For some reason, they didn't feel like they deserved it. One guy was getting the 1964 Literature Prize, and this other guy was getting, um, he literally negotiated the Vietnam Peace Accord um, in 1973, and they were trying to give him the Nobel Peace Prize, and he was like, no. you know. I mean, he literally established peace somewhere. Yeah, like, but no. I guess it's fair because, I mean, at some point, some people feel like it's a duty to just, you know, yeah, they're not no. doing their job to get awards. They're right. just doing it because they want to put an end to the war. Fair. And that was how, like, the similar thing with the guy who got the one of the Millennium Prize problems he solved. He turned it down. And he's the only one that's been able to solve one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you talking about that a couple episodes ago. And I was thinking that as I was reading that other fact. Um, we've also got people who have been given the prize, but then not allowed by their home country to accept it. Um, As you can guess, three people were in Germany when Hitler was uh, in charge, and the government said, no, you can't take these awards, Uh, they can't accept their prize, which I thought was interesting because don't you want your country to, like, look better? And if you are promoting how good you are at science to some degree. Yeah, I don't know. Um, And then there's also two from the Soviet Union, um, which I'm sure you could probably make both those guesses as uh, Germany and Soviet Union being the ones who said no. Then we've got also posthumous awards. So technically it's in the rules. Um, let me find it here. Well, while you're finding that, um, there's also five people who were awarded um, a peace prize while they were under arrest. So they were oh, you I know, spending that, yeah. time in a prison while they were awarded the peace prize. And that was actually something that a lot of the Peace Prize awardees share is because they're usually doing work that... They're criticized for it first. very highly criticized by their home country, for example. And so they're taking a big step and being bold to, to do the work that they do. So yeah, five of them were under arrest at the time of their award. Um, okay, so I remember, I remember the rule I was going to say. So the rule within the Nobel Peace Prizes is that you can only award prizes to people who are living, right? Yeah. And so there have been... A couple, I think actually just one posthumous award, which is you're thinking, well, if they already died, how are they allowed to get the award? Well, the, in 2011, they announced the Nobel Peace Prize in physiology and medicine, and it was discovered that one of the award winners, Ralph Steinman, had passed away three days earlier. But um, it was decided because the board had already decided on him getting the prize before it was known that he was dead they would still follow through with their option. Yeah. Which I think is a very, like, 
a very unlikely scenario to be just three days away from uh, receiving it, which is unfortunate, but I'm I'm personally glad that they continue to give him the award. It would have looked really weird to just say. Yeah, and well, they awarded it. They announced it to it, like, they announced it without knowing that he was dead, I believe. Yeah, so, that's the thing, yeah. So they, I mean, they didn't even know. It's like uh, if you say the, it's almost like if you say the wrong movie in the card at the Oscars or whatever, and then it's like, well, now I feel bad saying that it wasn't the one I just said. It was a different one. I misread it or yeah. something, but yeah. uh, whatever. Now, also a, a note on the award winners. They're called laureates, um, which is a play on, not a play on, but it refers to the laurel wreath, which is a thing that like Greek gods or or people in mythology, you might see it on their head. It's like a crown of leaves and flowers and, yeah. and stuff. Um, let's see. Multiple Nobel Prizes have been awarded to families. There have been really famous Nobel Prize families like the Curies and um, I think Niels Bohr also received an award with a family member or something like that. But um, I'm not sure. Yeah, so there's... That's interesting. It's not like nepotism. It's just like your family's smart just as hell. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and lastly, just an interesting thought on the awards themselves, the things they, they are given. So they're given a medal... Um, but they're also given a, a diploma. Um, in the diploma, each diploma is unique. There's not a single one, and I'm not just saying because the names are different and this, the prize it says is different. It's because each one is actually a work of art that is designed um, or drawn or sketched or whatever by Swedish artists. That's cool. So, yeah, every single one you get, it's like your art, and you get it forever, and it's, nobody else will ever see what it looks like besides you. Everybody talks about how, finding a significant other that's going to give them D1 babies, but, you know, I just want to find one that's going to give me Nobel Nobel Prize, Prize babies. babies. Yeah. That's what's worth it, though, because I was actually, my mom was calling me, talking to me about the Nobel Prizes, which gave me kind of the inspiration to do it on this episode, and she was talking about how, she was listening to an audio segment where the guy gets the Nobel Prize. He's like 60-something or 70-something, something like that. And he calls his parents and his elderly parents who are like 90 or something like that are like, we're so proud of you, like all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know, just the parent-kid yeah. relationship still sticking around when you're, when you're that old and still like doing all that great work and your parents are just like, they want success from yeah. you. We should talk. Let's take a break. Let's take a break and then we'll start talking about the prizes from this year. Okay. All right, so now we're going to go ahead and get into some of the prizes that were awarded this year that maybe aren't as interesting to our audience, but are still, there's still a Nobel yeah. Prize. They're still really cool. I mean, they should be interesting to everybody, but like we're making the assumption that you are here for one thing and one thing only. That's hear us talk about science. Yeah, science and other cool stuff like that. But yeah. all right, so um, let's get into the literature prize this year. Yeah. So, um, a Norwegian author named John Fosse. I'm just guessing that's how you say it. Probably. His last name, we can but go it's by def- that. the first name is definitely John. So John here <laughs> <It's> um, Joan. <laughs> was awarded the Literature Prize for his innovative plays and prowess. Prose. Is that prowess? Is that how you say it? Prose. It's prose. His innovative <laughs> plays never and been prose. in an English class for the last two years, yeah. I'm in one right now. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, anyways. <laughs> um, Norwegian author John Fosse uh, got his. Innovative plays and prose, um, which gave voice to the unsayable. Interesting. Which Interesting is a cool voice. sentence. Um, but yeah, all of his works are written in Norsk, which 
I guess maybe they're translated. Um, but he is one of today's most widely performed playwrights in the world. So interesting. Yeah, so he's I a real like, modern day Shakespeare. That's what I'm hearing. Is he's he's making some nice plays and prose. Yeah, so. his, his prose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like I like us trying to talk about something. Other like than, non-stem yeah. for once, and I just I have I wish I had something meaningful to say about it, but if I'm just learning now how to pronounce prose, then I should probably set a boundary. Yeah, yeah, might just give up. Because over the last century, um, the purport the <clears throat> try again. Yeah, you got it. Some interesting stuff because over the last century, uh, the proportion of women in paid work has tripled in many high-income countries. So that's a that's lot. What I'm of, talking about that's yeah. a lot of women entering the workforce here. Yeah. No, but okay, by the way, you can go to the Nobel Prize and they give really, really good summaries on each of these for if you like they don't assume you have an understanding in any in any one background. So now we have the Peace Prize. Um this was awarded to Nargis Mohammadi. Mohammadi. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely butchering that. Um but she just is wait the till vice I get president. just wait till I get to mine. Okay, good. Yeah. So she's the vice president of the Defenders of Human Rights Center, um, nice. which is headed by a yep. fellow Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Um, so there's two Peace, Pel- Peace Prize laureates wow. working on the same yeah. um, place. Which Were they awarded? Crazy. Was it only awarded to her? And no, that was yeah. It? She got one. This other lady got one. Before, like previously. Actually, I, this other person got one fr- uh, previously, yeah, some other yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. So... Yeah, they're both they're both working there, um, so that's pretty cool. She was awarded this award for um, her fight against oppression of women in Iran and her fight to promote human rights and freedom for all. That's what so, we like to hear. Pretty interesting. So mm-hmm. she she's been a vocal proponent of mass mass feminist civil disobedience against the hijab in Iran um, and a voice critic of the hijab and chastity program of 2023. That's so, what we like to hear. Some interesting things there. Um, I always find the peace prizes interesting because those are, again, the people who are, you know, she also spent time in prison. I didn't get the statistics about it, but she also spent time in prison like many of her fellow peace prize laureates. Um, let's go prize in. How do you, what, where do you want to do this? We've got three more prizes left, um, but these ones we're going to dig a little bit more into to make sure that you guys feel satiated. We've got medicine, chemistry, and physics. To understand this year's prize in chemistry, nope. To understand this year's prize in medicine, we need to understand what a vaccination is. Um, and basically, at, at, at the fundamental level, a vaccine is you're taking a... Uh, it's meant to stimulate the immune response. This is what a vaccine does. And it takes a disease that is weakened or killed um, entirely and introduces it to the body so that the body is better equipped in the future to fight the disease. Yeah, these are our old method of vaccinations. Or right. like not necessarily old, but... Yeah, the traditional yeah. virus is like you take a, the virus itself, damage or destroy it, give it to the body. The body learns the instructions on how to fight it. And then now when it shows up in full health, they the body knows what to do. Yeah. So um, when we were first introducing vaccines for things like polio and measles, I don't even remember how long that was, but... Um, no, I don't think during my lifetime at all. If you, but if you get the disease and you fight it off, and you fight it off, then you don't need the vaccine, right? Unless it mutates and you'd have to get a, a, a an updated uh, vaccine or something like that. But right. right, your body, if your body's already fought it, then then you, you're good. Um, okay, so 
Look at us giving out health advice left and right. Consult your doctor, please. Yeah. Recent molecular biology has enabled us to skip the step of introducing the whole virus, and rather we just take the, or we just make proteins. We take the viral code from the virus and make proteins, and we can introduce the proteins to, this is, this is step two, Judd. Step three is the prize. What are you shaking your head for? So we don't make the proteins. Yeah, yeah, no, that's the next part. That's the next part. Trust. Trust. Uh, okay, I'm listening. Okay. Now I got to start over because I got a non-believer over here. Okay. Recent molecular biology, not this year's um, prize-worthy molecular biology, but other, other um, work to fight vaccines oh, is okay. we take... Fight vaccines. Yes, we take the viral code and we use cell culture or like lab cell culture or whatever, and build proteins that these viruses would have on the outsides of them, and then just introduce the proteins to the body, um, which is another way to help people learn to fight diseases. This is how we um, combated hepatitis B, and I think it's how we did HPV as well. Another way we've done it is introducing a vector. So we, we take the viral genetic code that we were talking about, put it inside another virus that's like completely harmless, so you can't even get like semi-sick from it. We put it in there and package it and then send it to you and your body will read through the, the, the code and, and, and figure it out as well. However, both of the methods that I just described, creating the proteins or introducing the code through the harmless virus, both of these take a lot more work in production, which make, means that if there's a large-scale outbreak, getting a quick response is something that's not achievable. Sure. So this, Judd, is what brings us to this year's prize. Okay. Um, so genetic sequences, um, let's talk about mRNA quick. I, I might use that term uh, a couple times here in the rest of this explanation. So mRNA is just a genetic sequence that collects the protein-building instructions from the DNA. The M stands for messenger. So you can think about it, it goes to the DNA, collects information on how to build a protein, and then delivers that wherever it needs to go within a cell. Yeah. Okay. So in the early 1980s, we were trying to um, produce just like the mRNA, just produce this genetic code. And we were able to do it uh, pretty efficiently. And this is typically called in vitro transcription. So just creating strands of mRNA. Now, there's two early problems to creating any therapeutic drug or like or vaccination with in vitro transcription with mRNA. And that's one, it requires you to have a really uh, robust carrying system to deliver it into somebody. And then also, when you introduce this mRNA, people have an inflammatory response, yeah. which is not good because you don't want the area that you're um, trying to give a vaccine to to become inflamed or cause more harm to the body than you would intend. And so this wasn't really, you know, early excitement about this kind of um, mRNA production was limited. However... There was this lady and this dude named Cataline Carrico and Drew Wiseman. So Drew Wiseman's an immuno immunologist, and Cataline Carrico is a Hungarian biochemist. Um, and they were working together to try to figure out how can we reduce this inflammation response when we're introducing mRNA to people. Yeah. And so what they found is that our mRNA, we have mRNA inside our bodies, right? So yeah. we're talking about two different kinds of mRNA the mRNA that we make and the mRNA that the virus makes. The mRNA in our body is frequently, uh, all I found is that they said it was frequently chemically modified. I don't know 
exactly what the modification entails, but I think they're basically saying that it's coding the same thing, but kind of like in a different font, right? It's saying the same thing, but in a different font. But sometimes they're altered, their, their identity has changed or something. It's coding essentially the same protein, but it, there's a little bit of a modification, and that's natural, and it happens within our body. That's the main point, okay? The main point here is that if there's mRNA inside your body, it's pretty frequently and pretty commonly modified in some way. Yeah. However, when they were introducing this mRNA to people um, as a way to f- learn to fight a disease, this mRNA was like perfect. It was constructed. There was no modification whatsoever. And it turns out, based on their research, that our body can recognize this unmodified, these unmodified strands of mRNA, and that's where we get the immune res- or the inflammation response. So what they did is, <coughs> God damn. <coughs> Bless you. I just, no, I just, I just, call, I just choked on, I don't know, nucleotides and <clears throat> DNA. Yeah. Um, it's probably in there somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So basically what they found is that if they introduce some possible variants of the mRNA before they, they give it to somebody as treatment, you can cut out this inflammatory response altogether if we do modification before introduction. And the other thing is, is that if we're introducing modified mRNA, the protein production the the proteins remember this mrna is is coding for proteins that our body will recognize as foreign yeah. and then we'll create an immune response yeah the production of these proteins skyrockets when we introduce modified mrna which is actually a good thing because then our body is more frequently yeah recognizes it and is more likely to recognize it, right? So if we want to increase the protein production once the mRNA is inside our body. Um, So this is great because essentially their research has not only cut out the inflammatory response, but also increased protein production. And because we're really good at creating this in vitro transcribed mRNA now, this is like the fastest and most effective way to create a vaccine now is just create the genetic sequence that we want give it to people, and then they learn how to fight a, fight a virus, right? Yeah. This is actually, um, thanks to their work, and I think this is why they're being recognized um, now, is thanks to their work, this is what enabled the rapid production of the COVID-19 vaccine over the last couple of years. It was really only, you know, like a 12-month cycle before they were rolling out the, the major vaccinations, yeah. which is really quick for a completely new disease. Yeah. So thanks, guys. That was the medical prize, which was pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, now that's we were able to fight the COVID, COVID virus because of that, and yeah. so these people, you know, let they me saved us. Go to college, not uh, behind a computer screen, which is great. And then oh, also, yeah, like that. Yeah. their the mRNA production that they have been adding to essentially is also being used in some certain kinds of therapy, and also even some cancer treatments for certain cancers. So like. Interesting. Anytime I hear the word cancer and treatment in medical news, I, you know, I'm excited. Anywho, this year's prize in physics yeah. is also pretty interesting to me because it has a little bit to do with what I do um, for research. So we're looking at some attosecond physics. So attosecond physics are... So an attosecond, first of all, that's what we first need to understand, is a billionth of a billionth of a second. So this is a really, really small time frame, like a really, really small time frame. You know, think about a billion, mm-hmm. and then think about another billionth of that. Mm-hmm. 
No, you think about a billionth. Yeah. In a billionth of a no, billionth. No, but if you think about a billion and then a billionth of that billion, then you're just thinking about one. <laughs> yeah. So okay. think about but think about a billionth of a billionth. Wow. And then you're thinking about something pretty small. So that's actually ten to the negative eighteen. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot in the other direction. I don't know why sometimes when we're saying facts on the show, I expect like like to hear like a like a a sound effect that's like whoa or some something like our music's supposed to start playing. We do that after I say this next one. This is better. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it's just interesting because <laughs> it's a billionth of a billionth. It's a billionth of a billionth. A billionth but, of a billionth. But, but the reason that we're like no reactions because a billionth of a billionth. A billionth like we have of no billionth. Pers- it's 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 bars. We have no perspective of what a billionth of a billionth is. I don't even have a perspective of exactly. what a billionth so is. So I'm going to give you a perspective, okay? Okay. There are more attoseconds in a second than there are seconds in the age of the universe. That you're there. There are more attoseconds in there one second. There are more attoseconds in one second. Then there have been seconds. Then there in the have entire... been seconds in the since the Big Bang, since the dawn of our universe. That's a lot of attoseconds in a second. So the, the let's wait right here. Ready? Mm-hmm. One second just passed. Okay, one second just passed in 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 the scale of the entire universe, right? Yeah. There's so been more attoseconds. Yep. Yeah, in that second, like just the, in our talking right now, there's yeah. been way more than that many attoseconds by now. Like so it's like more. if we if if we lived on a slower scale, or it's like. Don't just no, stop talking. No, so no, 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 no. I'm gonna Atto go ahead and talk like about a, every second. It's like an entire universe, slow universe is created, or fast universe. An entire fast universe is created every second if you look at it from the attosecond scale. Sure, right? So, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> it okay. doesn't make sense. Okay. No, it Damn did. It. It's okay. just like what's happening on that small scale. There's nothing happening. Yeah, not, not, not on our scale, not on the human time scale. scale. The only thing that's really moving, electrons. Our electrons, and, and that's light, what we're going to get light. into. And yes, light moves that fast too. So and me, no. Oh, so, okay. well, you can move in a, not in an attosecond, but not in a second you could. Um, so, we've gone into the scale of the attosecond, which is I think for, I find that pretty fascinating. So, and if you want to know how many seconds there have been in the since the creation of the universe, that's ten to the seventeen. So we're pretty close, pretty but close we're off mean? by a magnitude of ten. Yeah, which is kind of a lot. Which is a lot on that scale. So. <laughs> yeah. Now we're going to get into kind of how a camera works. So when we think about shutter speed, so if you're trying to capture like the flapping of a hummingbird's wings on a, on a camera, uh, a hummingbird's wings flap around 80 times a second, which is obviously super fast. So if your shutter speed is, if you hold your shutter speed for one whole second, you're not going to be able to see the hummingbird's wings in that one like frame that's going to be a blurry picture. Yeah. But if you set your shutter speed to 80 um, milliseconds, like snaps one second, eightieth yeah. of a second, then you're yeah. going to see in a one still frame of that hummingbird. Nice. Now we're going to talk about attosecond lasers. So the idea behind an attosecond laser, so the goal of the this, physical, this physics experiment was to see an electron. We want to capture, we want to have a better understanding of where an electron is within the electron cloud. Cool. So the model of an atom that you see in your physics class, unless you're or chemistry, unless you're kind of taking a higher level class, is is incorrect. So our electrons are around one small atom of a nucleus. They are actually can be anywhere within a cloud or region around this um, nucleus at any moment in time. Yeah, kind of anywhere or everywhere. 
around the nucleus. Atoms have a diameter of 10 to the negative 10. So to go to once from one side of the atom to the other, you're traveling a distance of 10 to the negative 10 meters. So it's a pr- really small distance. Right. Light travels at 10 to the 8th meters per second. So slightly slower. Right. But when you combine those two things together, you get 10 to the 18, oh which is the gosh. attosecond. So that's yeah. why this is an important time scale is because in one attosecond, light will have traveled from one edge of an elect- uh, one edge of an atom to the other edge. Right. So this is... This gives us the ability to capture where the electron is most likely to be in that time frame. It was previously thought <laughs> that laser, lasers were capped at this at a speed of 10 to the negative 15 seconds. They were only able to produce a... So lasers are produce a wave. And this is right. something... And so the distance between one peak of the wave to another peak is the wavelength that we're looking at. And we're looking at that wavelength right now in seconds. So how long it takes us to get from one peak to another peak. It was previously thought that lasers were capped at um, a time of 10 to the negative 15 seconds. So however, we were able to actually expand this by 10 to the negative 18th by combining more than one wave together. Got it. Yeah, I'm there. So when we, pr- when we combine two waves together, when we make them incident on each other, when they collide, we know that waves interact and they change their wavelength and their their frequency. So we did one good laser plus one good laser equals one even better laser. Right. Got it. So then if we take, so now this Nobel Prize was awarded because these people were able to take more than one laser and combine them together to produce one laser that is at this attosecond frequency that we want, attosecond wavelength frequency that we want. And now what do they do with this attosecond frequency laser. We're blasting it into atoms to try to measure where the electron is within the atom, which is kind of crazy. Highly precise. Or it needs to be highly precise. And this is very important because if we're able to understand this, we're able to understand how bonding works, which has huge implications in chemistry, biology, anything, anything, basically anything, materials, anything like that, because now we're able to produce, I think the main application would be materials in the medical field because we're able to make material stronger and, for example, vaccines or proteins. I think the biggest thing is the protein manipulation to find out how proteins bend and fold. So That's how we're able to potentially cure cancer. And you made it, yeah, I was going to say, you made a good point about materials and medicine too, I guess, because literally, and this leads on into the chemistry prize, but we'll hang here for a second, which is just that electrons dictate virtually every important property period. If you want to know how rigid a material is, it probably has to do, you know, first about its composition, but then of the individual atoms, how many electrons are there? What kind of bonds can it make? Because atoms that make stronger bonds with one another are therefore going to be harder to break. Electrons um, and their positioning is what dictates hydrogen bonds. And hydrogen bonds are the thing that allow water yeah. to move up stems and plants. It's what allows... Yeah, more than just hydrogen bonds, all kinds of bonds as well. But yeah, I, I was trying right. to just think of one specifically, example. Sure. Yeah, no, but so every property, virtually every property can kind of, to some extent, come down to the number and position of electrons. I don't think I've even said the names of the people who got this award yet. That's because I was. That's because we were obviously leading up to right, that. And we that's were leading what I was up to coming that. for. Right. right. So honestly. now we've explained what they've done. So their names are, and I'm going to butcher them, are Pierre 
Agastone, uh, Ago, <clears throat> Agostinini, Ferenc, Kraus, and Anne L. Hewler. So these are some pretty cool people. Man, your accent was flawless too. Thank you. Yeah, you got I that on the on the no, on the head. Nailed the it. L. Hewler one is definitely wrong. So just take that with a grain of salt. Nice. <laughs> Go ahead on. Let's learn about some physics or some chemistry. Sorry. Yes, guys. Okay, we have one more prize left, and if you aren't just on the edge of your freaking seat after this episode's prizes, then you certainly will be after this prize. So. I said that virtually every property is dictated by the number of electrons, right? Yep. Well, what if I just told you I lied? You lied? Yeah, I did. Are you ready to hear why I lied and what I was lying about? Yeah. Okay, here we go. So this year's prize in chemistry. Let's start here with the names of the people, because that's what we've been doing is starting with the names of the people, right? Yep. Yep. On all the prizes, we started with the names of the people, including physics. Mm -hmm. And and that's on record. So Moongi Bowendi... Louis Bruss and Alexei Yekimov are awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for 2023. This is from the prize or from the website. They said, quote, for the discovery and development of quantum dots. And you got to you got to hand it to them. Anything with the word quantum in front of it gets a little bit extra credit. Or dots, you know, nobody really eats those candy. I feel like not a lot of people like dots. Are you saying that because you know I love dots? I feel you like you're actually, saying, yeah, I love dots. They're like one of my, that and Tootsie Rolls, which uh, is, it's yeah, just like. Weird. Tootsie Rolls are good, but yeah, dots are Especially the, the fruit flavored Tootsie Rolls are really, really good. Yeah, you're really weird. Stop yucking my yum, bro. <laughs> I like dots. All I'm saying is I had, I actually had this debate with a group of people today that chocolate candy people are superior than fruity candy people. At the end of this episode, if you can explain it to me based off of the number and placement of electrons in chocolate candy, then I, that, there's, there's a STEM background there, and I can, I can get behind that. But until then, I'm no, going to continue with the Nobel Prize. I don't, I don't need Nobel to go Prize. to the nano scale to prove that they're better. I just need to go to the taste bud scale. Okay. All right. Well, anyway. Please continue on to this year's prize in chemistry. So in typical chemistry, like I've, I've, I've stated, the number of electrons is kind of what determines properties and applications of molecules. However, at the nanoscale, at the smaller scales, the governing property is no longer the number of electrons, but the size of the atom or the size of the particle. And let me explain. Let me explain this. So the quantum scale, here we're talking about just a few thousand atoms, right? And a few thousand atoms in uh, in perspective is not... A lot at all. Like I know you're hearing thousands and you're thinking that's huge. So when we're talking about this quantum scale, then it's just a couple thousand. So, well, um, what were you going to say? It's quantum scale is like subatomic particles. Fudge off, chocolate candy man. Okay, so basically the... Wh- I, this is from the Nobel Prize website. So, okay, they, they, they... I don't remember. I'll allow it. Okay, I'm just talking about... At, at the scale that we're talking about today, small. we're talking about, yeah, just a few thousand atoms, which is ridiculously yeah, small. That's still super small. Because we measure things in 10 to the 26th of atoms. Anyway, so this is the same relationship. This is just thousands of atoms. This is the same relationship as a soccer ball would be to the Earth. So that's, when we're talking yeah. about anything significant uh, or any, any, any grouping of regular-sized matter or whatever, just a thousand of the atoms is like a soccer ball to the earth. 
Now, uh, when what we're particularly worried about here is the size of the atom, like I said, at this scale. And this is where something called quantum phenomena appears. Mm-hmm. This is why I said quantum, Judd. Quantum. Quantum, yeah. Gotcha. There's something called quantum phenomena, and you're thinking, okay, another use of the word quantum. So, so it's cool. So it's cool. As a particle shrinks in size, the space for an electron to move, the space where an electron can exist, shrinks. And this changes... Mm the optical properties of that group of atoms. Right. So when you're sh- just shrinking down the size of what you're looking at to just a few thousand atoms, there is less space in these electron clouds for these electrons to jump around within the molecule. So no longer, uh, or the governing property is no longer just the number of atoms, but it's this, this at this relative scale, it's just the size of the atom that matters in yeah. terms of these quantum phenomena, which one of these quantum phenomena happens to be optical properties. One of the uh, um, laureates, Alexei Yekimov, had early success in putting these effects to use. So he took nanoparticles, so these, um, again, this is just like groupings of a few thousand atoms. He took nanoparticles and made glass out of it. So he was inserting these nanoparticles into glass, and what he found was by changing the size of the nanoparticles, guess what changed? The color. The color of the glass, exactly. And then um, this is important because it shows that the color was dependent not on the, you know, what you're putting in. You can put the same thing in at different sizes and get different colors. And then another uh, laureate, Mungi Bowendi, then perfected the quantum dot manufacturing process, which is important because, yes, it's cool if we can show that these quantum phenomena exist, but if we can't do anything with it, um, or produce them at any reasonable scale, then what's the point? So he perfects this um, manufacturing process to help turn out really, really high-quality nanoparticles. And, and to understand this manufacturing, we have to understand nucleation and growth. Basically, it's a materials concept that says when things crystallize or when, when things are liquid and then they cool down, for example. Let's take water because it's a really easy example, and I think I can kind of remember it well or like let's just say liquid aluminum so liquid aluminum when it cools down it's going to form this orderly structure that we know about in solids right however nucleation is the process of a crystal forming like have you ever seen kind of like in ice water just doesn't all all of a sudden turn solid ice once you hit zero degrees celsius or 32 fahrenheit right it the crystallization starts in different points. In those points where the crystallization starts is nucleation. Mm. It requires um, like a big difference in the energy for the particles to decide to, you know, the particles are flying of water. I'm going to go back to the water example. They're flying past one another in the liquid state, but they have to be very uh, low in energy to finally click and decide to stay there. And when they do, that's called nucleation. And then growth is the speed at which they capture other particles in this nucleation point turns into a, a, a larger crystal. Yeah. That is the very the basic um, idea of nucleation and growth. Now, Bowendi was able to perf- perfect the manufacturing process by modulating the temperature at which they were um, toying with these particles to kind of force nucleation when they wanted it and then to only focus on growth. We We know also in materials that depending on the temperature, we can favor growth. So taking the crystals that are there 
in expanding them, or we can favor nucleation. So the crystals yeah. remain small, but high in number. There's a really cool video um, of this guy who's able to produce like the exact f- shape of snowflake that he wants. I don't know if maybe you've seen it. I haven't seen it, no. But it's using the same sort of things where where he's manipulating the temperature and, like, the amount of water that he's adding um, to this snowflake, and then it's growing how he wants it to. Yeah, the points on the snowflake, whether he creates more points on the snowflake or grows the original points. Yep. But so now that we understand this, we can see how Bowendi was able to create a manufacturing process where we can dictate what the size of these nanoparticles actually are. Yeah. Um, which is important because we ended up turning this out into applications like QLED screens and LED TVs. I said that the quantum phenomena um, typically have to do with optical effects. And so immediately, um, actually, I was going to say immediately you should be thinking, but I wasn't thinking this, but they, they, they took these quantum dots and now put them into things like colored TV screens that look like really, really good. Now we can pack more colors into like a a pixel or whatever it is. You know, I'm not a TV technologist, but um, if we want to make better looking crystals then, or better looking TVs, then that's one way to do it. Um, And then we can also do LED lamps. So changing the color of lamps, which is uh, sick. I know, Judd, you had some LED lights in your room until they fell on your head in the middle of the night, right? Yeah. No, (laughs) they fell behind my bed. So I'm alive still. They didn't strangle me or anything. But anyway... Um, but that's literally all we had, is that was the yep. chemistry um, prize there. Pretty good cool prizes. So thank you to, you know, and the great thing is they're all listening to us. Yep, they're going to listen. Explain our projects, yep. or explain our projects, projects. Their projects, yeah. yeah. Um, so since you guys are listening, you know, I should probably say thank you so much for all your applications in the field of science and yeah. in literature Definitely. and economics and peace. Peace. <laughs> peace. Yeah. Peace. peace be with you. Yeah. Listeners. Speaking of peace, we should probably say goodbye as well, right? Yeah, peace out. Okay. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. If you would like to engage with us more, you can always head over to our Instagram where we're posting stuff all the time for people who love science just like yourself. And if you would like to be the listener shout-out, keep an eye on our Instagram page, and we will give you a bunch of opportunities to possibly be featured on an episode with your own personal message. Um, That's PG. Um, but I always forget to post them. That's why I don't have one for this episode. But I swear, if you just texted me on Instagram or messaged our Instagram account and said like, hey, say my name on the podcast, pff, I'll do it. PG-13 messages may be considered, R-rated may messages be considered. will definitely be um, denied. Just denied. for our, con- you know, our audience. For our audience, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, no, that's, um, again, thanks so much for listening. And... We will be back in two weeks to talk about an episode that is undecided now. Peace. Peace. It's a billionth of a billionth. It's a billionth of a billionth.